0: Welcome to Career Day on the MarTech Podcast.
2: Today, we're going to learn about the skills accumulated and lessons learned from a great marketer throughout the various stops on his career. Joining us for Career Day is a marketing consultant and one of my favorite podcast hosts. Brad Costanzo is the founder of the Costanzo Marketing Group, which helps businesses create new profit centers using overlooked opportunities, hidden assets, and underutilized relationships to secure new revenue sources. Brad is also the host of the very popular and very fun Bacon-Wrapped Business Podcast, which I was a guest on about a month ago. All right, here is our interview with founder of Costanzo Marketing Group and the host of Bacon-Wrapped Business Podcast, Brad Costanzo. Brad, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Thank you, Ben. It is great to be on it. I'm honored
1: because I had you on my show.
2: It's great to have you back. I know it was so much fun and we really hit the ground running. We got to talk a lot about podcast monetization and, you know, life running a podcast. And today I want to flip the script from what we talked about on your podcast, which was, you know, all technical professional stuff. I want to talk a little bit about career development and your career path. Let's start off at the beginning. How did you get into marketing? My
1: whole career after college through until I started doing marketing when I was about 33 years old back in, uh, what was that, 2000 and, oh, I guess six or seven, I was in sales. So I had a sales background. I was in financial services sales. I was an advisor. I did sales of a service in commercial real estate. And that was my kind of strength. Is, and that's really all I knew was sales. But when I tried to do some things on my own and tried to go out and generate my own leads, at a time, I was kind of just stumped. I didn't know anything about marketing. I always felt like if you could put somebody on the phone with me, I could typically close them very ethically and very easily, but generating leads was something totally new to me. 2007 came along and in financial services, things started to get really shaky, as you remember, and I got laid off my job that I'd had for about seven or eight years, and I was faced with two choices. Throw your resume together and try to get a job in that market, or, I had just read Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Workweek, and it turned me on not to the idea that I could work for four hours a week or get rich or anything like that. I was just enamored by the concept that you could utilize internet technology and a global workforce to outsource work to, and you could sell information, you could sell all this other stuff. And that just sounded a lot more intriguing to me than going out and just trying to get another job especially in a down economy. So I said, darn it, I'm going to figure this out. So I started off with a couple of friends and we actually, I started two businesses at the same time. One was a software business. One was in the publishing side, just selling information products. And I never got into those to really make a fortune or anything. I just really, I wanted to learn the nuances of how do I take an idea, take it to market, generate traffic around the world, convince them to buy something that I've got while I'm staying at home working. And it turned out to be an amazing marketing laboratory for me because I got to learn about sales copywriting and tech and automation technology and how to generate traffic and do affiliate and joint venture relationships and you know how to use WordPress and everything. I was just kind of like baptism by fire. I jumped in, and it took me about a year to really get any traction, but then it started to work and I started to have some good success. And I ran this publishing business and software business for about five years before I sold one of them. I folded the software business. And then I was faced with another fork in the road, which was, okay, do I build another product, business, software, et cetera, from ground floor? Or at the time, I was just kind of exhausted from it all. I just started consulting so I'd reach out to colleagues and friends and trying to find things that I could help them with and really I started to specialize in helping them find or create unique profit centers in their business that didn't exist before.
2: So you started off in sales and it's one of the reasons why you know I think we get along well we have kind of similar backgrounds. Yeah. My first job at a college was sales and taught me a lot of lessons about persuasion, and understanding and overcoming objectives, which I really think has helped me as a marketer. Talk to me about some of the lessons that you learned from sales that you think helped you when you got into a more entrepreneurial and marketing-focused venture.
1: So there's a lot. In sales, one of the most effective things you can do is be empathetic and listen and really understand what the customer wants because it's high pressure. You are sitting there right in front of them And the person who talks the most is ideally going to be the prospect that you're talking to. And in marketing, one of the things that helped me do is proactively do a lot of research, which is kind of listening to what the market is saying so that I know when this does become a one-sided conversation, maybe it's a sales letter or sales video or a copy on a page, I'm answering questions that are already in their head And in language that they're using because I've done the research up front to understand and if I know that in marketing it typically is a one-way conversation of me telling you what I've got why you need it how to get it I better be doing it in a way that I'm not just guessing. And I'm not just bragging, but I'm doing it in a way that makes you go, okay, what about this? What about this? What about this? In fact, if I'm ever writing sales copy now, really the way I structure that is I try to come up with the, you know, this is the promise of what this product or service does. And then I go through all of the logical objections somebody might have, and I try to address those in the copy before they ever have a chance to answer them. So it's somewhat educational, and it's just kind of staying ahead of where they're thinking that's one of the best ways that having a sales background helped me prepare in marketing but then the other side of it is understanding that you know if i'm in front of somebody in a sales conversation remembering that if they got referred to me or if they found something else that kind of led them to me as opposed to me like cold prospecting them i would always remember thinking like okay What does this prospect need to know or believe or understand so that my sales presentation with him is going to be more of an order taking than an effort in persuasion? Because done right, somebody said the goal of marketing is to make selling superfluous. So if the marketing is done right, somebody already knows, likes, and trusts you. And then when they get on the phone with you, you're really just kind of answering questions and allowing them to buy as opposed to hitting them over the head with a club, trying to get them to sell. So I think those are two of my bigger lessons from that background.
2: There's a reason why the sales and the marketing team generally sit close to each other at large organizations. There's the reason why sales and marketing for a long time were kind of considered similar or kind of bucketed together as a career path they are very much about understanding who your customers are figuring out how to persuade them to choose your services over someone else's and so whether it's in a one to one or a one to many or you know different stages of the funnel sales and marketing are forever going to be intertwined with each other you learned the lessons of sales and about persuasion earlier in your career you started an entrepreneurial venture and you mentioned that you were selling both information and then technology products How did you think about the difference in marketing information as opposed to technology?
1: Information was way harder. So it's easier to fulfill, it has a bigger profit margin, but the amount of sales copy and convincing to get somebody to buy information that they don't really want, they want products, they want results, was a lot harder. When we had the software product, we were the first ones to find a way how to hack your Garmin or TomTom GPS to change the voice on it to where it was like a celebrity or a character impersonation. Later on, TomTom started doing this, but we had a company called P.I.G. Tones, which stood for Politically Incorrect GPS Tones. So we had all different types of fun, wacky characters. We had celebrity impersonators
2: on. You got to give me some examples.
1: Well, we had everybody from Arnold Schwarzenegger and Stewie from The Family Guy and Homer Simpson and Bart Simpson giving directions because we found impersonators, we found out how to do that. So there was very little sales copy needed. It was like, here's what this does. The minute you listen to it, you're either like, I want that or I don't. And then it's just, is the price, which was like nine bucks a voice, is that cheap enough for me to do it? So when it comes down to the sales, it was change the voice on your GPS, super easy, nine bucks and get, you know, favorite celebrity giving you turn by turn directions. That's it.
2: What could be better than Arnold telling you to get you the chopper? Bingo. So then if you're selling an information
1: product in the information businesses, there's three primary categories, which is health, wealth, and money, or relationship-based, right? So the interpersonal relationships, there's how to make money, how to lose weight, or how to find love. I mean, everything kind of falls into one of those categories in one way or another. I guess the other aspect is how to do very specific tasks. Like on Udemy, you can find like how to master Excel spreadsheets. But that typically falls into the wealth category because that's... Business. Yeah,
2: which is I want to be better at work, which is I want to make more money.
1: Right. So in doing that with information, you first have to consider where this person is and if they have a problem. Are they aware of their problem? And if they're not aware of the problem, or if they are aware of the problem, are they aware that there is a solution? And if they're aware that there is a solution, are they aware of which solution is best? And if they're aware of the best solutions, are they aware of the best providers of those solutions? And then that all kind of funnels down to you, right? Like that's basic market situational and avatar awareness. But you kind of have to meet everybody based on where they're at. And then you have to convince them that, yes, you do have a problem. B, this problem is way bigger than you imagine because you're only looking at the surface level. But if you thought about this and this and this, you got to really got to convince them that this problem is even worth solving. Because for some people, just not taking act, they can live with it. So there's a lot more heavy persuasion involved in selling information and how to improve your life than there is in selling physical products or software. But doing that has made me an unbelievably better marketer. Because if I can do that with like, sometimes I would write 30 to 50 page long sales pages. People are like, nobody's going to read that. But the truth is the people who read 50 page long sales pages or 30 minute to an hour long webinars or video sales letters are buyers. If they're interested in enough, they're going to watch the whole thing and pull out their credit card and buy. And by getting really good at that skill, it made going after or helping smaller businesses like other service-based businesses, products, software, et cetera, that now that's a walk in the park to come up with sales copy for them. So yeah, I consider myself lucky. I've kind of been on both sides of that.
2: You mentioned that you sold one of your companies and then folded one and then eventually went on to the consulting space. Just walk me through the acquisition story and, you know, in the opposite side, closing one business. And what was that like from a career perspective, an emotional perspective? Tell me a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. Emotionally,
1: it was great because I was already mentally checked out from that publishing business that I sold. And I was kind of, you know, just half ass in what needed to be done. And I already had my hands in a couple other pots. Like I was already kind of consulting before I sold the business and my heart just wasn't in it anymore. So when I sold it, it was very cathartic and I was thrilled to be able to kind of start over with some money in my pocket and reinvent myself. The process of selling it was rather easy. I didn't sell it for a huge multi-million dollar payday that allowed me to just flip the bird at, you know, anybody still have to work. But I utilized a business broker that I know. And I said, You know, I'm thinking about getting out of this. I don't know if you have anybody who might be willing to buy, but he just so happened to have. A group of investors out of New Zealand who were interested in acquiring publishing based businesses and thought that this might be a good opportunity, so he helped me go through all the financials and everything else and just really clear out or clean up my records and whatnot, and then present it to him and you know the whole process it was relatively easy. It only took about three or four months of due diligence and negotiation. I've been in other negotiations that are dramatically <laughs> more involved in that, but the nice part about that was. You know, I sold it for just three times my monthly net. So just an even 3X minus the 10% commission I paid the broker. And what was great about that is number one, my motivation to work on that had started to already go down. But number two, I looked at it as like, this guy just gave me three years of my life because it was an all cash deal. So I was super thrilled that it, there was no earn out or anything like that.
2: So was it three months or three years? Three years. Oh, geez. Yeah. That seems like a pretty good exit. Yeah. I was happy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He basically gave me three years of my life. You know, it would take me three years to earn that. Right. So, and I probably would have earned a lot less because I was going to let it probably run into the ground.
2: Right. So you go through this exit and eventually you start moving towards a consulting model. Talk to me about why you chose to be a consultant after your exit as opposed to start a different business.
1: Well, number one, I was kind of exhausted of starting a business. I love it. It's fun, but it's also exhausting. And I think I now had the curse of knowledge, meaning I knew how hard starting a business was going to be. When I first started my first business, I saw tip of the iceberg. So I was, I guess, delusionally optimistic. This was going to be way easy. And it took 10 times as long, cost 10 times as much to get it going. And I know that that's a truism in most business. It almost always takes longer and costs more. And I wasn't quite ready for that. But realistically, I think it was because I just didn't have another idea right on the top of my head that I felt passionately enough about to run with and to put into place. So I started to reach out to colleagues and friends of mine and just saying, hey, what's a nut you're trying to crack? What's something that is either not working in your business or that you should be doing and you're just not doing it? Because I've got some free time now and I'm happy to utilize my skills over here.
2: I got three years of burn time. What do you want to work on? Bingo. And I've realized that I could
1: have a much bigger impact on somebody else who's already got the assets. I had the skill set. As I had the skill set, I could go build the assets or I could borrow somebody's assets, in which case I did. So instead of just getting paid a fee, I like I do now, I like to negotiate performance-based fees. So there was a small earnest money retainer from the client just to make sure that they've got skin in the game. And the rest of it, it was a percentage of this new profit center of whatever it did. And I was always looking for the most leveraged things I could do. So I stepped in with this first client of mine, and I think it took us about three months on this project. But that probably paid me about $75,000 off this one little project that we did because I was able to engineer a new profit center for him that created windfall money. I think I got paid 20% of the uh, proceeds on that. And I just remember thinking, wow, that was easier than just taking all this time and going negative and building out a business. And I like supporting other people. I'm ADD as a mofo. I love novelty. I love new things. And consulting allows me to fulfill my love of novelty and new challenges. Because when you have your own business, you're always just working on your own challenges. But I love tackling new issues and new industries and new things. Because I can take what I've learned over in this industry, industry A, and apply it to industry B. And oftentimes, it works like gangbusters. Sometimes it doesn't. But when it does, it can be really profitable. And I get to look at my clients as partners, as opposed to just clients. And in addition, I bought another web-based business about a year and a half ago. And I'm constantly on the lookout for businesses that I can either not just come in as a client, but either acquire the business, acquire a majority or even a minority of the business and grow it together. Because if I am going to grow it, I like growing with it and building out the uh, value of it. So I'm always on the lookout for companies and business owners who they're either at a plateau on what to do, or maybe they're just unclear on what steps they should take. Like, what should I do? What should I do now? What should I do never? How should I do it? And business owners get busy spinning plates constantly that it can be really confusing on to know which direction.
2: So if you've consulted with multiple clients, and you're focused on helping develop new profit center? How often is the problem that the businesses you're working with marketing related? How often is it a challenge where they're either having trouble identifying who the customers are or having trouble communicating with them?
1: I think communicating with them is the hardest for most business owners because it's a real art and science to know how to effectively communicate your value proposition to your clients. A lot of business owners, especially small business owners, right? They have to be a jack of all trades. A lot of times they're doing the accounting, they're doing the finance, they're doing hiring and they're doing this, that, and the other. Maybe they have a team helping them out, but they've got their hands in everything. So giving the right attention to the right things, such as messaging, can be hard. So they'll kind of half-ass it or they'll say what they think is a good value proposition and it could be completely missing the mark. I think communicating your value proposition to the client or the customer is one of the most important things and one of the biggest challenges. Because if you do it right, if you get the right value proposition and the right offer to your clients, that forgives a lot of other errors. You may not have the prettiest brand. You may not have the prettiest website, you may not have the most this, that, or the other, but if you're able to talk to the client or the customer in a way that they're like,
2: wow, you know exactly what I need. It's Amazon is what you're describing. It's not the prettiest website. It's not the prettiest brand assets, doesn't have the prettiest logo. But every time I go there, I know exactly what I want and I can find it. And the experience is seamless, right? There's no friction. Absolutely. And that's actually
1: one of the other things that we look at. So immediately after Shoring up the marketing, the message. And by the way, a lot of people are you know, there's two big aspects to marketing traffic and conversion. You got to get them there and then you got to get them to buy. And that's true in a retail brick and mortar store as well. Got to get them in the door and then got to make sure they pull out their wallet and buy something. And there's rarely a traffic problem, it's almost always a conversion problem because if you're hitting the nail on the head, you can buy a lot of traffic because people are going to buy and you're going to be able to convert that profitably. But after we figure out not only what's the right message, but then what are some of the right channels to go after and what's the right messaging in that channel, then one of the things I immediately turn to is look at the back end and the customer experience. So that could be the back end offers, like A, do you have anything else to offer the client so that we can increase the average or lifetime customer value, which allows you to buy more traffic on the front end. But B, what is the overall consumer experience, especially if you have any kind of monthly recurring revenue or repeat purchases? Because a new customer is the most expensive thing you're going to spend money on. But if you've got customers and they pay you every month, keeping them happy is one of the easiest things to do. But so many people focus on the front end only and they ignore the back end. And I'm working with one of my clients right now and we just realized if we can get their average retention rate from five to six months with them, it'll add an additional like sixty dollars to $70,000 of profit every single month if we can just extend it by one month. So we've been undergoing a pretty in-depth strategy to just make sure that people stick around a little bit longer. And funny part is that kind of work is some of the simplest it just takes you to take a deep breath, look at the customer journey and go, okay, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What should we do more of? What should we do less of? What might make a critical difference in their emotional state on the back end? Because if you can really build out that back end, whether it's more offers or retaining them longer, you can have such a dramatic improvement on profitability.
2: I think that's an important lesson for marketers is that you know, often marketers think of their job as customer acquisition. And marketing to your existing customers, customer retention marketing is often the more profitable thing to do. And even I've said before in consulting conversations, when you start marketing, start at the bottom of your funnel. And most of the time that equates to you need to remarket to people that have abandoned a cart or visited a product page. But there's another side of that coin that's somebody that's got through the funnel and is sitting as a product user. If you can get them to extend their relationship, which is continuing the marketing relationship, and not just depending on the product to retain them, you can have a much bigger impact on the business.
1: Absolutely. And a lot of businesses who don't even have a recurring income offer, sometimes that's one of the easiest ways to add dramatic, not just income, but valuation to their companies, adding some type of recurring revenue subscription program. I'm starting to see it everywhere right now. There's companies like Design Pickle, who are, you know, they charge a flat fee for really unlimited design work. And then there's WP Curve, who was started and then sold to GoDaddy, who was just pay a monthly fee for WordPress website maintenance. And then there's other ones that are coming around. I'm starting to see these everywhere, which is just pay a monthly fee for this and you can kind of get unlimited X. And the beautiful part to the owner of the company is they just get monthly recurring revenue and there is a lot of times that the work or the deliverables go, go unused. And I actually pay for several of these things, because I know they're always there. And I know I'm not going to get nickel and dimed every time I want a task, they're just going to do it. But when I'm looking at and not just me, but I know even when private equity and other people are looking at a company and they're valuing it, monthly recurring revenue typically has a four times multiple just on earnings versus one-off revenue. May, you may just get a one X on that, but monthly recurring, you're going to get a much higher valuation. So that's one of the things I do when I work with customers and clients as well is, is there an option add in a monthly recurring revenue component? And if so, I mean, you talk about little hinges that swing big doors. That's one.
2: Absolutely. Time for a one minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. So tell me a little bit about how you got into the podcast business. You're working in consulting, you're helping people cultivate all of these incremental revenue streams, and then you decide you're going to start speaking into the microphone and you know whispering into the air, hoping people will come. Bacon wrap business. Talk to me a little bit about the podcast. Where does that fit into your business and why did you start it? That
1: started for two reasons. Number
2: one, it was back in, yeah, what was it,
1: 2013 or something, where people just started really kind of getting into the podcasting thing. And I had a couple of my friends said, man, you should start a podcast. You know, every time we talk, I feel like I should record it anyway. So I thought about it, but at the time, I never wanted to create like the Brad Costanzo show because I was like, ah, I don't know, it just didn't inspire me. And I didn't have a topic I was just super, super hot on. But then one day, a friend of mine shared a podcast episode and I was like, oh, that's great. I'm gonna share it on Facebook. And I remember writing out in the just top of my head, I was like, listen to Ben's episode here. This is some bacon-wrapped business advice if I've ever heard it. So I just wrote that down like a little adjective. And I looked at it and I was like, huh, bacon-wrapped business advice. Like I liked the alliteration. It was kind of fun. Everything's
2: better with bacon. Bingo. Yeah.
1: And then I just remember thinking bacon-wrapped business with Brad Costanzo. And I was like, all right, you know what? If I ever start a podcast... I'm going to call it Bacon Wrap Business with Brad Costanzo. And then about a month later, I didn't own the URL or anything, but I sat down with my friend Nick and he interviewed me on his show. And I had told him this story, exactly the story I just told you right before. And he said on the air, it's like, so you've got a podcast coming out. What's it called? Bacon Wrap Business? And I just went with it. I was like, yeah, it's great. It's, you know, featuring interviews with... Like right now I'm BSing. Like, yeah, you can come subscribe. And he goes, where do they go? And I go, baconratbusiness.com. And he's like, all right, great guys. Go tune in to Brad's show. Now, I don't know, Ben, how long between today and when this airs. Six to eight weeks. Okay, right, six to eight weeks. I asked, so I was expecting that. I was like, when does this air? How long do I have to create this podcast now, you butthole? And he goes, 10 days. I was (laughs) like, what? Like, I don't know anything about podcasting. He goes, well, you got 10 days to figure it out like, all right, USOB, let's do this. So I got on Google, I asked him, I asked some friends, how do I launch a minimally viable podcast? How do I just get it off the ground and get something to attract visitors? Luckily, I was somewhat technically proficient. So it wasn't that hard to do. And if you listen to my very first few podcasts, they were just solo casts. And I'm just talking about stuff that I knew of. And I'm just trying to get it out. And I'm so uncomfortable on the microphone. And you can totally tell in my voice. But the other big benefit there is it gave me an outlet to not only explore topics I want to explore, but to reach out and build access to influential people. And podcaster to podcaster, we get this. It is the single best networking relationship building hack in the entire world. Because when you have a platform to give other people access to an audience, ideally an engaged audience and people who are going to listen it's very easy to get people to say, yes, I'll spend an hour on the phone with you for free. I mean, it's not really for free. You're giving them access to your audience. But I have had, not only like have I just gleaned so much information off of my guests, like really actionable stuff. Like I, I'm very proud of the fact that if you listen to my podcast, you can walk away from that and probably implement a money-making strategy. Your podcast was a perfect example because you shared one of the ways in which you monetize yours and some of the just the really brilliant things you do And if somebody listens to that, they can implement a good portion of that. And every one of my episodes is like that because I'm asking the questions because actions I want to take. But it's also led me to... I've had a billionaire named Jesse Itzler on my show. He had released his book, interviewed him, got to spend an hour with him. And then afterwards, we really hit it off. And he hired me to be his strategic marketing consultant. And I've worked with him for over a year to really help build out his personal platform and brand and some of his offerings. And that led to other amazing relationships and clients and partnerships so just the ability to have a platform that allows me to open doors that might otherwise be closed has been the biggest surprising benefit. And in fact, just to kind of stay on my little soapbox here, it's a strategy that I will work with some of my clients, especially in the B2B space. So if they're doing a business development, I will suggest oftentimes that they create a podcast about their topic. And a good example is one of my clients is a hospitality consultant. And his whole goal is to work with restaurateurs and hoteliers and hotel groups and restaurant groups around the country. And I said, well, why don't we start a podcast in the hospitality business? And you're going to feature them as like heroes of hospitality. And these are the people who are just doing things really well and really right. And he knows a lot of these people as it is, but it's not hard to say, Hey, my name's Brad with this amazing podcast. And I think you're doing some amazing things over here at, you know, Ben Shapiro's restaurant. And I'd love to feature you and just showcase what hospitality means to you, et cetera. So it's very flattering. So he gets people on the show. They talk about all the things they're doing right. And then about halfway, three quarters of the way through the show, he flips the script and starts saying, well, what are some of the things that you wish could be going better? What are some of the challenges you've got, right? That's like a discovery call in sales, because then afterwards, it gives you the opportunity to stay in contact, share ideas, give them a free call, invite them to a workshop, or just say, look, I've got an idea for you that I think can solve that problem. Can we set up a secondary call? And then it's like shooting fish in a barrel.
2: Yeah. It's a great way not only to network, to build credibility, not only amongst the people that you're interviewing. Obviously, you build an audience and they get to know you and hear your voice and hopefully there's some assumed credibility from the things that you're saying if you're saying the right things i guess but it's also a great way to just get yourself out there and give people an understanding that you are positioned to be an expert in a given field and for you it's monetization right bit general business strategy and you know we've talked a little bit about marketing For people that are interested in getting into the field of revenue optimization and the type of consulting you do, as you look back on your career, what advice do you have for people that maybe have started in sales and are thinking about branching out, people that are interested starting a podcast, what can you say that reflects on your experience that's advice for other people interested in following a similar path?
1: Well, this is good. This is very timely because, as I mentioned with the hospitality consultant, and I've helped other consultants do this. So I've been systematically going through this with him on a one on one basis in order to extract my processes for doing this anyway. So this is a very hot topic for me as I'm, in essence, I've already been extracting my IP. So the very first thing, and let me frame it in kind of that way of somebody who's making a transition from maybe an expert level employee. To an expert advisor, like an independent expert consultant. And you were an employee before, right? You were working with eBay and you were working with other companies. I have had a job. Yeah, exactly. When you get hired for a job, you're hired to fill a role. And when you're in as a consultant, you're hired to fill a result. That can be a hard shift mentally to make, which is I'm not here to fill a role, I'm here to get you a result. And you might be doing some of the exact same things in order to get those results. But before the client's like, hey, I need to hire a chief operations officer who's going to handle all my stuff. But if you flip the script and you go, listen, there's a lot of things operationally you could be doing better. I've identified this one or two things. One example would be your employee turnover is way too high you got a lot of operational issues, but unless you fix this, this is the one that is your bleeding neck. And I have a process and a system to fix this. But making that shift from serving a role to fulfilling a result, it sounds really easy, but it can be hard. So the number one thing to do is take a look at all the things you do in your expertise as an employee. I'm willing to bet, according to Pareto's law, right, that 20% of what you do provides 80% of the results of the company. So now what you want to do is really identify those things, what moves the needle the most, what gets a client from A to B the quickest, and how can you make those the tips of your spears? Because I can do a lot of stuff when it comes to marketing and business, et cetera. But there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really move the needle. It's nice to have. But if I can come in and take somebody's, let's just say it's their email list that they almost never email their database of customers, et cetera. And I come in, I go, okay, you've got an entire potential pent up demand of sales here. Let me help do that. And we're just going to focus on getting your email database, cranking out cash as quickly as possible. I'm going to ignore everything else. And I'm just going to come in and do that. The beauty of this is that if you can identify those things which you can do, which have the most effect and demonstrable result for clients, you can oftentimes do 10% of the work, but get paid double, triple, 10 times the amount of money. Because I know right now, if I had a very few companies would be able to hire me as like a chief marketing officer, not only that, I wouldn't want it. But let's say they hired me as a CMO for $250,000 to work 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week. I mean, I don't work that many hours a week, but I make more money than that already by serving people in the most leveraged way possible, helping them get very specific results. And I think what's important for people to learn is what are those things? What are those things that are so valuable that somebody would be willing to pay for it? For my hospitality consulting client, one of the things we've identified really is, it's like employee turnover because that fixes a whole lot of other stuff. It is reducing vendor expenses and employee onboarding. And and this actually kind of falls into turnover, but onboarding and building culture. So those are the three biggest things because they have really demonstrable results. He can do all the other stuff as well, but he knows that those are some of the things that keep those people up at night. And then once you kind of know what those are, you want to find out where do these people hang out? Where are they? How can you, if you've got a message that if you have this problem, I have this solution, here's how it helps you, here's how to get it. Are they on Facebook? Are they on LinkedIn? Are they somewhere else? Are they offline? Are they online? Who else has access to this traffic? Where can I put my message in front of them? And it can be something super simple. It can be your social media posts. It can be social media ads. And just getting the right message in front of the right people. It's definitely not rocket science and you don't have to build up 50 clients at once. If you have one client, one client can replace an entire full-time job if you do it right.
2: I think that my biggest takeaway, and I agree, I think the best advice is understand what you're going to have that's going to make the biggest impact. And- You know, my experience was I had to be independent and needed to manage multiple clients, right? Which is the equivalent of multiple small jobs at one time to know that I only had a limited number of hours to invest in this. So I wasn't just saying, okay, I have to fill my time. It was my time is valuable. I need to figure out what's going to have the most impact with the least amount of time so I can manage more clients. And when in my consulting practice, when that flip switched, All of a sudden, I found myself to be a much more productive marketer. Brad, I think it's great advice. I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you walking us through your career and sharing the knowledge. Thanks for being my guest on the MarTech Podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. That wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks again to Brad Costanzo, the founder of Costanzo Marketing Group and host of the Bacon Wrap Business Podcast for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Brad, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can send him a tweet at Brad Costanzo, B-R-A-D-C-O-S-T-A-N-Z-O, or you can visit his company's website, which is bradcostanzo.com. If you're interested in listening to, if you're interested in hearing more from Brad, you could also go to BaconWrapBusiness.com, which is the website he mentioned, which links to his podcast. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, don't worry about it. We've got you covered. Just head over to martechpod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes. We have the contact information for our guests. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can even send us your topic suggestions or your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. We've built some new social media handles, which are martechpod on Twitter, LinkedIn, where even on Instagram now. So martechpod, M-A-R-T-E-C-H-P-O-D, or you can reach out to me directly. My handle is Ben J benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we publish episodes every day during the work week. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. All right, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to focus on keeping your customers happy
0: thanks for listening to the martech podcast and i hear everything production Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.